Bill. Great reading. Happy Mother's Day and uh, really glad that you could join us, mums and grandmums, on this special day. I wonder, uh, what is the best marriage advice you've ever heard? Whether you are married yourself or maybe you've been lucky enough to be on the bridal party and had a chance to give a speech to, to the groom or the bride. What's the best marriage advice you've ever heard or that you've ever given? Um, I want to show you some of the best ones I've, I've seen. Um, can we get my slides ready? Okay. How about this one? 90% of being married is just shouting, what? From other rooms. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really is. Good advice. Okay. How about this one? Hold your wife's hand in the mall because if you let go, she'll start shopping. It looks romantic, but it's actually economical. How about this one? Marriage tip. Your wife is less likely to argue with you if you're cleaning. That's right, gents. You can have this one for free. And how about this one? Marriage, a noun, an endless sleepover with your favorite weirdo. Yeah, I love my weirdo wife. She's teaching Sunday school. She didn't even hear that. Can we get that off the recording? Okay. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this famous chapter is often seen like marriage advice, isn't it? In fact, I've heard it read out in weddings. I've preached on it in countless weddings. Uh, It's the kind of passage you might even give to a, a newlywed so that they can hang up on the wall. But is that what it is in context? We've been doing 1 Corinthians. Last week, we kicked off again from chapter 12, and you'll remember it was on the idea of spiritual gifts, yeah? And our series is called A Messy Church because the church in Corinth was messy. It had lots of divisions, and not the least because of their view of gifts. There was this insider versus outsider. There were the haves versus the have-nots. That was chapter 12. Now, next week, when we come to chapter 14, we'll come back to the idea of spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of tongues and prophecy seem to be their issue. So you you get that 12 on gifts, 14 on gifts, sandwiched in the middle is this famous chapter, chapter 13. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the context of chapter 13 is supposed to shed light on the issue of spiritual gifts. Yeah? Now, that's even clearer if you read on from the end of chapter 12 into 13, because, you know, these verse and chapter divisions, they didn't exist, right? They was put in much later. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to be really handy to have it open today. Look with me from chapter 12, verse 29. Let me just read through, and you'll see how it's linked, okay? Chapter 12, verse 29. Are all apostles, he's talking about gifts, Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way, and what's that? Love. Yeah? So as you get into chapter 13, if you see it in context, it's actually less like the beautiful poem your dad might read out on your wedding day. It's probably a little bit more like your mum telling you off. That's kind of chapter 13. Now, you might think, well, that just kind of wrecks it for us. It's not as pretty, not as beautiful. I actually want to say that context is more relevant for us. 
more relevant for us as God's people today. Because this is not some sentimental Bible's version about what love is, you know. There's already so many songs and poems and advice about love all over the place, and the Bible's just adding its two cents worth. Now, if that's the case, it'll only be relevant to a few, especially if it has to do with marriages, yeah? It's only relevant to the married. But because of the context, I want to say it's more relevant to us. It's more important for all of us, because this is This is really bread and butter Christian living in the context that every Christian is in, which is the body of Christ, the church. Every follower of Jesus in every local church needs to live out our God-given relationships with every other follower of Jesus, right? That's relevant to every follower of Jesus, and it's hard work. It takes grit, commitment, determination. It takes supernatural power. It takes love. What kind of love? This kind of love. So let me pray and let's get into chapter 13. Father, we pray that you would show us very clearly how this chapter on love impacts all the relationships that we particularly have with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as those outside. This is hard love. It's difficult love. It's a rebuking, stinging love. But help us to hear it and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points you can follow on your outlines. Why is love? What is love? Who is love? So, right? Why is love? First point. Now, I said 12, 13, 14, these three chapters, like a sandwich. And if you've heard my preaching and teaching a lot, you know I love looking for sandwiches in the Bible. They're everywhere. I just like sandwiches, okay? Um, And the most important part of a sandwich is not the bread on either side. It's the meat in the middle. Okay, so chapter 13 is the most important of these three chapters. But here's the other thing, though. The, the chapter itself is also a sandwich. Ah, I see we're going sandwich crazy today. Look, look at chapter 13. Verses 1 to 3 are about gifts. Verses 8 to 13 are about gifts. Yeah, it starts about gifts. It ends about gifts. What's in the center? Verses 4 to 7. The center, the meat, is going to tell us what love looks like. All right? So what I'm going to do in in my first point is I'm going to tackle the bookends first. I'm going to tackle the the, the bread first. And remember, it's leading into this chapter with, I will show you the most excellent way. So I'm going to try and talk about why is love more excellent? Why is love the most excellent? And why is it more important than even spiritual gifts? And there's two reasons, there's on A and B for you on your outlines under point one. Firstly, a person with gifts but no love is nothing. So let's come to the first part, the first bread up top, verses one to three. Let me read that again. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Okay, you see what Paul's doing here? He's taking some of the most extraordinary examples of gifts, tongues, prophecy, faith, and he puts them on steroids, yeah? All right, this is tongues even of angels. This is prophecy, I like to think at Doctor Strange level, if you know what I mean. How many futures did Doctor Strange see? 
Anyone know the number? 14,605,000 futures. Sorry, another Avengers reference. Go and see the movies. Even if you have prophecy at Doctor Strange level, even if you could speak the tongues of angels, and even if you have faith, that's every civil engineer's dream. I have a friend who's working on the M5 as a civil engineer. He would love to be able to just move mountains. Save a lot of trouble. And then verse 3, he, he leaves the idea of gifts on steroids, but now he's talking about Christian commitment, sacrifice on steroids. Okay, Generosity at Mother Teresa level. Give your body to hardship. Literally give over your body, even to death. Martyrdom, complete sacrifice. Okay, All of these individually or put together without love. What is it like? Well, the gift of tongues, even of angels without love, is going to be like this. I hope that symbol wasn't expensive because I might have destroyed it. The gift of prophecy, of faith at that level without love, what it says there, it doesn't say if you have faith or prophecy, then these gifts are nothing without love. Notice what it says. Not that gifts are nothing. It's stronger than that. It says, I am nothing. Or literally, I am a nothing. Right? Without love, you're a nobody. It's very strong, isn't it? Total generosity, total sacrifice. Well, without love, nothing gained. This is one of those investments that leaves you bankrupt. Do you see how important love is? Uh, just for a moment, I want you to ask yourself these two questions. Right? Who are you? What do you do? Who are you? What do you do? Now, we'll start with church. So those of you who are Christians, followers of Jesus, who are you in relation to church? How would you answer that question? Am I a, a leader? Am I an elder? Am I a pastor? Am I a, a mentor, an older brother, an older sister, an uncle or auntie to someone? Am I respected? Am I loved? Am I admired? How would you answer that who are you question in church? How would you answer the what do you do question for those involved in church. What do you do? Do you lead? Do you teach? Do you play music? Do you preach? Do you share the gospel, evangelize? Do you disciple? Do you encourage? Do you counsel? No matter how you answer those two questions, who are you, what you do, you hear what Paul is saying, without love, without love, who you are and what you do is, in the words of Macbeth, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Now, if this is what it's like as a follower of Jesus in the church, how much more so when you apply this to your life outside of the church? Who you are, what you do outside of the church. Now, you can think about career, you can think about achievements, you can think about your family, whatever it is, however you would answer that question outside. How much more so without love? you're even more of a nothing. Those things count even less for anything, if that were possible. See what he's saying? See, if you're a follower of Jesus here, I want you to think about how you would like to be remembered. How would you like to be remembered? Say one day you have to go elsewhere to another church, or maybe 
decades on, you know, finally it's your time to leave the earth and you've been involved in this church for a long time, how would you like to be remembered? Would you like to be remembered as, you know, Danny was a great whatever. Marshall was a great pastor, right? Stella was a great welcomer. Sorry, I'm just picking on you because I see you. How would you like to be remembered? Or wouldn't this chapter push you to actually say, no, how I want to be remembered is Danny was great at loving. Marshall was so great with showing love. Stella showed love like Jesus. I mean, isn't that what we should want to be remembered for? That's the first sub-point. A person with gifts but no love is nothing. How about the next one? Love lasts forever, gifts don't. So, first part of the sandwich. Now we go to the end part. The other piece of bread. Skipping the middle bit, we'll come back to verses 18 to 13. Have a look there. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. A little secret you might not know about me. When I was growing up, I had a little security pillow. It was my favorite pillow. It was the kind of thing, if you know, if you've ever had a security blanket or pillow or something, you'll know one of the most devastating things is when mum washes it, right? I mean, it could be filthy, but it smells like me. And then you wash it, it just smells wrong. That was my pillow. I used to take it on camps. I couldn't sleep without it. Traveling, if I didn't have it, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't function without my little pillow. Now, you might ask yourself, how long did I have this pillow for? Well, when I was nine, actually, make that year nine, (laughs) when I was about 15, (laughs) my sister, the cruel, cruel lady that she was, hid my little pillow. And I couldn't find it. I was devastated, but eventually that was how I got weaned off my pillow. She probably did me a favor. Right? I I don't even have a picture of it. I wish I could show you a photo or capture the smell, but anyway. Paul is saying to a church obsessed with spiritual gifts, gifts are important, but you will grow out of gifts one day, just like security pillows. In fact, you need to grow out of them. Because gifts are given by God to His church to build up the body of Christ until Jesus returns. Until Jesus returns. See, the body of Christ, if you like, is, is now in adolescence. It's still growing. It's still growing as people come to know Jesus, come into the body. As people mature in Jesus, as the body grows, as Jesus uses His body to further His mission in the world. But at the end of all things, when Jesus returns to judge, adolescence is over. The body will then be fully mature adult because Jesus will have his full people. They will have been made fully mature and his body's task on earth will have been fully completed. Now, when that day comes, it's time to throw out the little pillow. Yeah? Spiritual gifts are important, but not forever. 
It's his point. Love, however, is eternal. See, love is better than gifts because love will last into eternity, long after Jesus' return and the new heavens and new earth. And even alongside the other two things that will last into eternity, faith and hope, even then love is still the greatest. Look at the last verse of this chapter. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, why is love the greatest? Faith and hope are wonderful, but why is love still the greatest? I, I think it's because love is more at the heart of God than any of the other aspects, okay? Now, Christianity alone really can say God is love. You got that? You've heard that? God is love, says the Bible. Not God is loving, it's true, but God is love. Now, why is Christianity alone able to say that? Because the God of the Bible is eternally Trinity. We talked about the Trinity last week. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, but from the very, in fact, there is no beginning to God and there's no end to God. Eternally, God in Trinity is in perfect loving relationship within Himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always, eternally, in perfect loving relationship. Now, I know the Trinity boggles your mind. How can one plus one plus one equal one? But you know what other religions cannot say about their gods? And that includes the other monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism. They can't say that God is love or Allah is love because a God can only become loving when there is someone for them to love. So until someone is created, a God cannot love. Because love needs another person to love. Now, that means you cannot say whatever else you want to say about the gods of other religions. You can't say that love is at the heart of their God. You can't say that love is eternal. But the God of the Bible is eternal and eternally loving. God is love. And that's why love is the greatest. And that's why love will last forever. It's right at the heart of God. Yeah. Okay, to my next point. Remember, we looked at the bread, now we go to the meat. What is love? Now, verses 4 to 7, obviously, they're the key verses. Now, before we get there and tell us how love behaves and how love looks, um, I think it's actually worth defining what love is. See, verses 4 to 7, they describe love from different attitudes and actions, but you'll notice this chapter doesn't actually define what love is. So let me give you a working definition. Have a look on the screen. It's a bit of a clumsy definition, but I'll come to why I worded it this way. Um, one way that you can think about love is love is a turning towards someone to sacrificially seek their good. You got that? Love is a turning towards someone to sacrificially seek their good. Now, the reason I define it so clumsily is because we, you ask the person on the street what love is, and generally they'll think of love as an emotion, yeah? It's an emotion. That's why you can fall into love. That's why you can fall out of love. Now, many Christians will, and you might have heard this, will actually say, no, that's not the case with the Bible's love. And so Christians often counter by saying, no, love is not an emotion. It's an action. You've heard that? Love is not an emotion. It's an action. So you, I may not feel love, but I can still act lovingly. Now, I wonder if that's what you think love is. Not an emotion, but an action. I understand where that's coming from, but there are problems with that, isn't it? Did you notice chapter 13, verse 3? 
When it comes to those comes to those committed sacrificial things, it says you can give all you have to the poor, you can sacrifice your body to the flames or to be burned in older translations, but have no love. You see, these are all actions. You can actually act lovingly, give to the poor. You can sacrifice your body to be a martyr, but yet have no love. Do you see what I mean? Love has to be, well, it's more than just emotions, but it can't just be actions. Because it's possible to do these loving actions and have no love. And so that's why I think it's helpful to think of love as a turning towards someone. Now, that means love isn't only feelings and emotions, because it involves your whole person. As I turn towards someone, it involves all of me. It includes my emotions, but it's more than my emotions. And it tells you that love is a choice. You don't just fall into love and fall out of love as if it's you know, a ditch that you fall into accidentally. It is a choice. You can choose to turn towards someone. But at the same time, you can't just love if it's begrudgingly. Like, I will act out of love for you, but I will do it through gritted teeth. That's not love. All right? Actions alone doesn't constitute love. It's a turning towards someone. And at the heart of love is that second part. It's self-sacrifice for the sake of another's good. Essentially, love is me for you. The opposite of love is not hate. In fact, it's not even indifference. The opposite of love is selfishness. Yeah? Selfishness is you for me. Love is me for you. Okay, so that's a working definition. Let's now tap into these verses. Verses 4 to 7 speak to us, and I think we can group it in five groups, can't we? Firstly, love is patient, love is kind. Patience here means putting up with someone even, even when they are nasty towards you, even when they're annoying, even if they are the difficult people. Right? We all know people like that in our lives. Patience means we keep bearing up and bearing up and we don't complain or grumble or get bitter or angry. That's patient. That's loving patience. Now, quick note here. This is not talking about cases of abuse. Right? If you're being abused and your life or your health, mental or physical, is in danger, it's not just be patient, put up with it. No, no. It's not talking about that. Okay? It's talking about other circumstances when your life and your health is not in danger, you're not being abused. That's the kind of patience we're talking about. Now, kindness, the next one, it really belongs with patience here because it's sort of the other side of the coin. Right? It's the other side to patience. So patience bears up, kindness reaches out. Right? Patience bears up, kindness reaches out through words and deeds that show compassion and mercy and grace, even to those you have to be patient with, those who've wronged you, those who've annoyed you, and so on. Okay? Love is patient, love is kind. All right, but the next three belong together. Not envious, not boastful, not proud. So love doesn't envy. It doesn't look up to others and wish you had what they have. Right? It's jealousy or envy over the things that they have or their success. But neither does love look down on others and think, oh, I'm so much better than they are. Now, whether you express that verbally through boasting or through an attitude of being proud. See, envy looking up might seem very different to boasting and pride looking down. But you know they have something in common, don't they? Both are caused by when you look sideways, when you compare. 
both motivated ultimately when we are insecure about ourselves. Have you thought of that? Envy and boasting are both motivated by insecurity. The genuinely secure person has no reason to envy or boast because you don't need to keep looking sideways and comparing yourself to others, yeah, if you're secure. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to God. You are secure, aren't you? Because of who God says you are in Him. And if you really appreciate the security you have in the good news of Jesus, don't you have even less reason to compare? Be envious or boastful and proud. Because that's what love is like. How about the next few? The next few um, belong together. Not shameful or right, doesn't dishonor others. Not self-seeking, not easily angered, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Older translations has the first one, love is not rude. That might be the one you memorized back in Sunday school days, if you remember it. Not rude is probably not strong enough. So the English translations we have in our pews is not dishonor others, gets there. But I think essentially the idea there is you don't speak or act in a shameful way, whether it's you're doing something shameful or you cause others shame, dishonoring related to shame. So it includes acting or speaking rudely, but also may include doing or saying things that are degrading and shameful and downright wrong. So think, for example, of party, drinking, hooking up, Tinder culture. Right? Love is not like that. Love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't put yourself first. It doesn't think of yourself first. So, you know, there's this common understanding that I can't love another person unless I first learn to love myself. You heard that before? Now, I, I know, again, where that's coming from, but that's a pretty dangerous idea of, of love. I can't love you until I learn to love myself. Well, some truth in that, but it'll mostly work against true love, won't it? Because love is you before me, not me before you. Next one, love isn't easily angered. Love isn't prickly. Love isn't hypersensitive. Love doesn't get worked up and angry easily. Love doesn't rage. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love is willing to overlook small offenses. And in cases where it's more serious and is really hurtful offenses, love will seek to reconcile, make up, and forgive. And when forgiveness and reconciliation happens, love doesn't keep tabs of it and keep bringing it up. How about the next group? Doesn't rejoice in wrongs, but in truth. Now, notice the list. We started with patience and kindness. It started with two positives. Then we had seven negatives. The not, 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 not. And now we're going to get a summary of the negative before turning back to the positive. So these two sort of like become a bit of a, a hinge. So negatively, love doesn't rejoice in the tr- wrongs. Positively, love does rejoice in truth. Or delight, rejoice, same word there in the original. Now this is a great reminder that love both avoids what's wrong as well as embraces what's right. You got that? You can't love only by not doing certain things. You actually have to actively turn towards someone, hence that definition, to sacrificially pursue their good. Love is not just passively avoiding, it's actively pursuing. And it reminds us, again, when it comes to wrongs and right, that sin, sin is always unloving. You might think there are some sins that no one knows about that doesn't really affect anyone else. If I 
do a white lie or make a false claim on my tax or look at some pornography. It doesn't affect anyone else. It's a private sin. Well, there's no such thing as a private sin that doesn't affect someone else somehow because sin is always unloving. Yeah? But righteousness, the truth, is always loving even if it is private righteousness. So this reminds us that love rejoices in the truth and avoids what's wrong. And the last few, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Of course, the repeated word is always. And it sort of links back to the first thing that we said about love. Love is patient. Love doesn't give up, doesn't give in. Love has stickability. Love is resilient. There's a popular word nowadays, isn't it? And we need to hear it, right? Because in a world of instant gratification, of come and go social media, superficial relationships, we need to hear and apply this, that love is mostly not a short-term project. It's a good reminder on Mother's Day, yeah? I mean, any mum who only plans to love a child for a year, or even 10 years, is not much of a mum. Right, child rearing, loving a child is a lifelong project. And that's what love is like. And so to my final point. Ask yourself, is this you? I mean, could you take those verses, verses 4 to 7, substitute the word love with your name? Yeah, do it just as a mental exercise. Substitute the word love, read it out to yourself, would it still be true? Peter's patient, Peter's kind. Pete does not envy, Pete does not boast, Pete is not proud. Pete, could you do that? Could that be true of you? I'm getting a bit nervous. But more importantly, remember the context. Paul writes these things about love because this church in Corinth was the exact opposite of these. Remember, these verses are less like your dad reading it out at a wedding, more like your mom telling you off. You think about these Things about love. The Corinthians were the opposite of patient and kind. They were very impatient with each other. They were very unkind. Back in chapter 11, we did this last year. They didn't even bother waiting for each other when it came to the Lord's Supper. The, the one thing that's supposed to unite them. They were envious. They were boastful. They were proud, especially when it came to spiritual gifts. Saw that last week. They behaved, behaved very shamefully when it came to sex. They were full of self-seeking behavior when it came to food and idols and to eat or not to eat in chapter 8 and 9. They were easily angered. They kept records of wrongs. In fact, they even took each other to court. That's how they keep records of wrongs. They rejoiced in wrong things rather than rejoicing in the truth. They did the opposite. In chapter 5, you've got a case of incest in the church. And the church was thinking, oh, this is such a great thing because we're such a mature church that we allow this guy who's committing incest with his mother-in-law to be okay to stay in the church. <laughs> they were doing the exact opposite of what love should be doing, rejoicing in the wrong things. They gave up easily. They didn't persevere. They didn't protect. They didn't trust. They didn't hope. You see, Paul is saying to these Corinthians, you want to know what love is? Love is everything you want. So we need to apply this as a church, don't we? As much as it is about individuals, we need to apply this as a church. So what part of 1 Corinthians 13 might speak to us most at Southwest? Now, 
I'm actually going to do one section for you and a totally different section for our Bankstown congregation this afternoon. And please hear this as a pastor who loves you, and this is not a stinging rebuke, just some suggestions, because there's so much that you do well, Sweat Kings Grove, so much that we are thankful for. But maybe if there's one area that I might just put out there as I've thought and prayed about this, this would be the one for you. I'm wondering if, if friends, I, um, brothers and sisters here at Kings Grove, whether one way we can be more loving as a congregation is thinking about how to follow through and persist. Okay, following through and persistence. Um, remember that last characteristic of love, always protects, always hopes, always, yeah? Now, maybe a bit of reflection of, of, of the youthful generation. There's a lot of young adults here. But not just the young adults. We are a busy, busy culture. All right, so this won't apply to everyone, but maybe will apply to enough people that it makes a difference. And what I'm saying is this. I think as a congregation, it's sometimes really easy to have good intentions, to have good beginnings, but then you just give up or neglect it after a while because it's either too hard or you're too busy. Do you kind of get what I mean? I mean, you can apply this to lots of areas. It may be that you, you've decided to serve in a certain way, a particular ministry. It may be that you, you were saying, oh, yeah, CGs, community groups, sounds like a great thing. I want to be going to that. Or maybe your Sunday attendance or bringing your kids to kids' church, Sunday school, or your financial giving, or even when you offer to pray for someone or welcome a new person. I sometimes feel like we're great at jumping into things, enthusiasm, not so great with follow-through, yeah? You see, it's unloving to be fickle. It's unloving to be the last-minute person, the person that people can't depend on, to give your word but don't follow through with action, to give up when it gets hard or you just get busy, yeah? Yeah? Now, I think we also need to apply persistence with each other, especially if there is relational strain or conflict. For some of you, maybe, you actually need to follow through in resolving conflicts, and they might go back years, but you just kind of just left it. It's too hard. Don't want to have that. It's too painful. No, no, no. Love persistently pursues. Does that mean you need to reconcile properly with someone? And then keep no record of wrongs. Okay, they're just some suggestions. Again, don't hear it as a harsh rebuke, but just as a, a pastor who loves you and, and a way for, for us to grow in love as a congregation. So, is love you? Is love us? See, ultimately though, love won't be perfectly seen in any single person here. And you're not going to be able to put any church's name next to love and it all be perfect either. Because there's only one name, isn't there? There's only one name that you could substitute the word love here with, and it would be perfectly true. Because Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy, is not boastful, is not proud. Jesus is not rude and shameful. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered or keeps a record of wrongs. Jesus doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. See, isn't it wonderful that Jesus loves us like that? I read this quote once. I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? 
Jesus said this much, and then he stretched out his arms and died. See, when it comes to turning towards someone to sacrificially seek their good, aren't you glad that Jesus is like that and has done that? Aren't you amazed that he loved you enough to go to the cross to pay for your sins and my sins when we really wanted nothing to do with him? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. You see, until we are loved by Jesus like this and have experienced his love like this, there will always be a limit to our love, won't there? There will always be a limit to our patience, our kindness, our forgiveness, our tolerance, our joy, our seeking the good of others. There will be limits. You see, I don't know if you know this. It's not like those who are not Christians doesn't, don't know how to love. That's not true. I know lots of very loving non-followers of Jesus. It's just that outside of the church, love is generally, mostly directed at those who deserve to be loved and are lovable. But you see, only those loved by Jesus can supernaturally be able to grow in a love like His. A love even for enemies. A love that keeps giving and keeps sacrificing expecting nothing in return, a love that never fails. If you are a follower of Jesus, this means that you and I need to keep being loved by Jesus, keep delighting in His love. See, because our fuel for loving others will run out without it. See, the key to loving others isn't loving myself. That's the wrong way to go about it. If you want to love others better, you need to understand how much Jesus loved you. That's the key. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, will you turn to Jesus and receive his love? Because it's for you as well. You can do that today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love, your unbreakable, unending, powerful, self-sacrificial, death-defying love. Empower us by your spirit to love like you, even when it hurts, even when it's hard. Amen.